You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. Henry McPherson is a musician and artist working across composition, improvisation and pedagogical practices. His work has been shown internationally across diverse settings, from concert halls to galleries, bathrooms to dance studios, parks, warehouses, cafes, virtual halls and radio. His current creative interests lie in the intersections of improvisation performance and ecology, which is reflected in his upcoming opera, Maud, performed by Scottish Opera's Young Company at the end of July. How's it going? It's going great. It's going really well. Thank you very much. Yes. How are you? (laughs) Good. We're good. Uh, So we're buzzing to come along to see your opera mod next month. Tickets are booked. So talk us through the story and how it inspired you. Yeah, so the story from Maud actually comes from a village about two or three miles away from where I grew up. So um, I grew up in Herefordshire, which is on the English side of the Welsh border, um, down in the southwest of England. Um, And the story goes that in a church in a village called Mordeford, which was near where I grew up, there was this picture of a dragon on the wall that was kind of crusted over and really old and falling to pieces. And there was an inscription underneath it uh, that no one could read. And so I found this story about the carving of the dragon and the inscription and the tale that goes with it. Um, And I thought it would make a really fun storyline for a youth opera. So the story is that there's a young child in the village who goes walking into the woods uh, picking some berries And then in the woods, the child thinks that there's a fairy in the thicket and they pick it up and then take it home. And then they realise when they get home that actually it's not a fairy at all. Uh, It's a dragon. Surprise, surprise. Uh, That doesn't go down very well with the parents. So um, in my version of the story, Maud brings the dragon home and has a really uh, caring relationship with it. And then when the parents find out, that the dragon is in the house, they are not happy. And the story starts to unfold around Maud's decision on what then happens with the dragon and how the uh, village people respond to that decision. The story is kind of, for me, about uh, two things. The way that people can very quickly turn to fear at things which they think they don't know or things that scare them. So the way that the villagers react to the dragon, for example, uh, emerges out of fear. And that's kind of whipped up and made worse by um, one of the villagers uh, who really kind of gets the mob going. Um, And then also about just like uh, the actions and the consequences that happen throughout the story. So all the way through these various decisions and these various things that Maud decides to do in the story um she very often says like i haven't done anything wrong and uh the voice of the wise woman uh who lives in the wood who's one of my favorite characters in the piece repeatedly comes in and says well um that doesn't really matter because it's happened anyway 
Um, and that's, that may sound a bit bleak and uh, distressing, but it's kind of an interesting thing to play with uh, in, in the story. Like, um, no matter what she thinks about it, actually things are, things are happening kind of outside her control. And there are so many different factors which come into the story and um, sort of impact what happens. So it's a fun little opera. I'm really looking forward to seeing um, what the youth company does with it this time. And I think it's going to be really good. What a lucky story to stumble upon in your in your hometown. Like, I think I'd be stumped if I was looking for a folk tale from Bishop Briggs. Like, yeah, that's why you could. Maybe we could write some or make some. Yeah. I feel like I feel like that's that's like, that sounds like a fun actually like a fun book project. The folk tales from Bishop Briggs. That could yeah. be fun. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was really it's really great. I mean the the area has it's quite uh, it's very rural so you know there's not a lot not a lot of urban infrastructure still it's mostly just cows fields uh apples uh and woods and so um uh when i was growing up there i spent a lot of time outside a lot of time in the woods uh and so i was kind of in- i've always been interested in how we bring those kind of environments to life on the stage um and also there's so many bits of uh the natural world and uh across this island uh that we're on which are um still quite wild and so i was interested in in making something of that and it's a good story as well not to be missed (laughs) (laughs) so how did the story influence your creation of the sound world so the environment that maud is in when she goes to find this dragon the woods of Herefordshire, where the story comes from originally, they're filled with bracken and they're very mossy and there's lots of old, old, old trees. And so when I was sitting down to compose, I was kind of thinking about how I could bring together sounds of cracking and breaking like bark or twigs or leaves and also water, I suppose. So I was playing around in the original composition with kind of fluid melodic lines trying to bring out some of the wateriness of the environment which is just really wet I mean a lot like Glasgow to be totally honest (laughs) um really wet a lot of the time so fluid lines watery sounds and then crackling and scraping and breaking um so uh there are these parts for the chorus where they have to do like vocal percussion sounds almost to evoke some of this uh this environment and it's really interesting also to think about how the environment changes over the course of the year. And so it's not specific in my version of the story how much time passes, but I think as I was writing it, I was thinking about moving from dry to wet and cold to hot. Um, And the percussion uh, does a lot of playing with those kind of sounds, I think, exploring these different textures. Following on from that, how did you sort of bring a fresh contemporary approach to storytelling through opera that could appeal to young performers? Yeah, that's a really interesting and kind of challenging question, I suppose. Um, there's this conversation, I feel like maybe it's always been going on, this conversation in the world of opera about sort of how to be um, relevant or contemporary. It's the same in classical music, right? In contemporary classical music, these questions about how are we relevant? How are we contemporary? How are we, you know, uh, attracting new audiences and bringing people in? For me, the thing which has the widest reach across all these different disciplines or genres, whatever it happens to be, is just storytelling. So if you can tell a good story or uh, if the story is good, um, and I think folk stories are really always filled with all these different things that you can you can draw on and pull on. Um, if the story is good, it can kind of um, 
uh, lend itself to anything, I suppose. And what I like about opera and staged musics in general and these theatrical musical forms is that they they retell different kinds of stories in new ways always there's new costumes there's a new set you know it's in a new environment this time we're performing it in different spaces to where it was performed before and so I think just that process of change and opening the story up to different contexts can really invite new people in um in terms of uh I guess writing something for a young company I grew up listening to you know bits of opera but also like musical theater and um film music and like a lot of you know people who were born in the 90s just like the disney disney music and things like that and so i was always gripped by different kinds of singing so for the younger people i wasn't going to write like a kind of you know classical high opera style like um piece for the young company I was more interested in writing things that fitted the voices really well and also which were fun to sing so I spent my teenage years on stage as well sort of acting and singing in shows and I wanted to make something that was enjoyable and so all the parts have kind of they're quite characterful um uh almost archetypally characterful I think it was nice to play with but also I feel like the the young people can really sort of get into them that was what I was looking for. So ideally a good story. And then also parts which work well with young voices. Something really practical on that is all the voices in the score have sort of alternative um, octaves and things that the performers can sing in. And also the part of Maud itself can be split between multiple people or it can just be one person doing the part. And Maud's parents are written as genderless parts as well. So there's all these options that you can have in the piece to play with different things which I think opens it up for more people to explore. So a common theme in your music as you've mentioned is exploring ecology which leads us on to your Moss Gardens series. Could you tell us a bit about what fascinates you about moss? Yeah absolutely. (laughs) Yeah moss! (laughs) So moss I don't know I got interested in moss because I realised that um So mosses are a huge family of plants and part of a larger group called bryophytes, which includes like liverworts and these kind of all the little plants that you see at the corners of the street or on the roofs of buildings and we don't really pay any attention to. I got interested in mosses because they're just everywhere, but also we don't really look at them very much. And there's all this great art out there that's been sort of produced to do with ecology or to do with the natural world, music written about these pastoral landscapes or the dark forests or whatever it happens to be. And I was kind of like, what about the moss though? Like, what, <laughs> what about the moss? <laughs> um, it's just the moss has been crying out for attention yeah. this whole time. Well, yeah. Who's going to write a piece about us? <laughs> I don't know. Like the mosses are not systemically oppressed or anything like that. But at the same time... <laughs> I feel like it's there's always there's always more stuff to write about. Everything has a story. There we go. Everything has a story, yeah. even the moss. Um, and yeah, like I said, the, the sort of area I grew up in was really um, mossy and uh, sort of in that kind of wet, very, very green way. And so it was actually started in the pandemic during the lockdown. So I was walking around and just seeing these different different types of moss I suppose that I'd never noticed you know how everyone was was getting into something in the lockdown like there was a hobby or something like that I was wandering around and I was like "Mm, yeah okay so that's one kind of moss that's another kind of moss and so for whatever reason I decided to take an interest in them and um, 
I started thinking about writing music that was inspired by them, but also thinking about their structures. You know, the way that they grow is quite unique. They're non-vascular plants. So like, while trees have all these pipe systems inside them, I'm not a biologist, by the way, Uh, the trees have all these, you know, pipes and systems inside them that move water up and down. Mosses uh, and their relatives don't in the same way. So they can't grow very big. And as someone who is also not very tall, I feel like maybe I felt a kinship with them. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, so I got interested in them because we don't talk about them very much. We don't think about them very much. They were also, um, you know, they, they grow in these funny ways. They're also some of the oldest plants in the world. The, the algae that came out of the sea in the primordial soup, um, developed and turned into the mosses. So they, they're some of the, they've got some of the oldest histories and they're the ones which we overlook maybe the most out of all the different kinds of plants. Um, so I've produced a few different pieces in this series about mosses now. They're all using different kind of instruments, which I have to hand at home. This also started in the pandemic. So whatever I had in the house basically became an instrument for moss music making. Moss, moss music making. That's good. Um, and um, yeah, uh, I got interested in small sounds, uh, subtle sounds, like small things, little things. Um, and I don't know whether this means that everyone will listen to the music and then go out and get really enthused about moss. Uh, I don't know. Oh, no, we've been buzzing about it. We've been walking around being like, <laughs> check out that. This is the goal. This is the goal. I, I say yeah. I don't mind. This is the real goal is that everyone gets converted. <laughs> um, no, it's I was also quite um, kind of inspired by uh, my friend Maria, who Maria Sappho, who you might know Aileen, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Maria... Um, uh, does all this work with mushrooms, um, different kinds of fungus. And she and I did our PhDs at the same time. And she was really interested in the way that we can think about different kinds of communities, uh, like cultural communities, but through the metaphor of sort of underground mushroom networks. Um, and so I was thinking, I suppose, also about different ways that music can grow um, rather than it growing like a tree and having all these branching elements to it what if it's more like a moss and actually just kind of sits there and grows really really slowly
So you've said that these pieces were composed using a collaged improvisation technique. Tell us more. So, you know, when I was training uh, at the conservatory in Glasgow, I was on the composition program and a lot of our work was to do with making scores. You know, that's part of the economy of how we make new music. We produce our score, we hand it to a performer. But of course, there's all these other kinds of music making out there and these other cultures, which I'm also part of in various different ways. And the culture of improvising and free improvisation and kind of experimental improvisation is something I've always been interested in. And while I was still studying in Glasgow, I fell into it quite heavily. And recently I've been playing with just being completely away from notation in its various different forms, Western notation specifically, and recording loads and loads of improvisations and then layering them up in a door in the studio and pulling them around and seeing what happens. Um, And for me, it's really refreshing. I mean, it's just a totally different, I don't want to say a different way of working because I kind of did it as a teenager as well, I think, but more in like a bad indie pop way. Um, So Building things around just lets me see time in a different way and think about musical material in a different way. Something about not being on the page anymore is very helpful. So basically, I record a bunch of improvisations on different instruments. I sit down and then I layer them on top of each other, which is why I call it collage. It's like getting your bits of magazines and then putting them on top of each other bit by bit and just seeing how the sounds interact, I suppose, is what I'm interested in at the moment. And... Something that's really nice for me about that is that the recordings kind of take responsibility for themselves. When I'm sitting down and making a notated piece of music like Maud, for example, all the decisions are are mine and what note goes here and what note comes next and how does that note relate to all the other notes and how does that fit within the structure of the piece and, you know, that's the composing, that's, that's that environment. With these improvisations, when you put two on top of each other, they kind of just interact on their own. And I almost don't need to worry about it too much. Um, it feels like there's something quite playful in just pulling things together and seeing what it sounds like. Maybe I like it, maybe I don't. Um, and what I found it's doing is it opens up my ears to um, things that I probably wouldn't have thought of if I hadn't just done it. See what I mean? So yeah, uh, it's quite. it's been really refreshing. Uh, really refreshing, really nice way of doing things. So I've produced a few pieces like that now. So when you say, when you do each improvisation, are you conscious of the other ones you've done for that piece? Or is it very like you try and just focus on that improvisation as its own unique style or something? So I've played around a bit. I've tried a few different ways of doing things. I was just writing uh, an article about this, actually. Um, On the day, back in February, when George Crumb died, uh, which was I was sad to hear about, I recorded... I think it was uh, 16 different improvisations on different instruments that I had in my house. And then they were all very separate. So I would stick my little microphone, play for however long, and then turn it off and then move to another instrument. And I wasn't really trying to retain the information moving from thing to thing. It was just more about uh, certainly the way that I I improvise, um, following the fluctuation of the sound and also my body and the tactile relationship with instruments and moving and grooving with that and so um I would record these improvisations and then see how they interacted in the studio environment without really thinking about how they were uh, at the point of recording but then I've also played with ones where I sit down and maybe I record 
a solo improvisation straight into the door and then I might listen to that while I'm improvising over something else. That's kind of more conventional, I think, especially like different musical traditions and different ways of making music have that as kind of a common process anyway. For me, um, I'm not sure which one's more fun. I'm just enjoying playing with all of it at the moment. There's something about recording an improvisation, not thinking about the next one, doing the next few, and then just sticking them into a program, which is really liberating. <laughs> so the score for Moss Gardens 1 has a lot of freedom woven within it in terms of notation, duration, rhythm, and tempo. Does this freedom stem from you composing it as an improviser, or is this freedom something you want to gift over to the performers? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think... It's a conversation that crops up in lots of different ways in composing circles and improvising circles, you know, freedom. How much freedom do you want to give a performer? How much freedom does a performer have? How much control exists? How much authority exists? There there are so many different ways of thinking about it. For me, you know, I, I split my time, I suppose, between working as an improviser or playing as an improviser, thinking about improvisation, uh, teaching improvisation, and then composing in a more conventional way. And they're kind of two different world sometimes uh not so much in terms of the processes i think but almost like the cultures that surround them like how we talk about things and the different kind of words that we use and i feel like i am interested in a score now as being a kind of um a thing that helps to make a performance happen rather than being the whole important thing i put a lot of freedom into the scores that i make now i think and that definitely comes from my experience as an improviser because some of my most joyful musical experiences have been from working as an improviser when something unexpected happens or when someone brings something that you just never thought was going to be there and those are the times where i i go yeah this is really good this is really fun in terms of the durations as well, I think it leaves a lot of stuff open to open to interpretation from performers in a really musical way. So I used to be quite hot, I think, on uh, duration and uh, really being really precise about the durations that I wanted. But actually, the more I've played with improvisers, the more I realized that musicality exists in all these different ways. And just like you know, you'd hand over a tune to, I don't know, a trad player or a folk player and they will bring it to life in this totally different way. I can hand over a set of pitches with a rough spacing between them and the performer will interpret it in their own vernacular, I suppose. There's so many different phrasings, so many different ways that you could explore it. And I think my job now is more to offer some things and then get the performer or ask the performer to offer some things back. And that's kind of how I see my relationship with composing now. It's definitely come through the improvising practice though yeah it's loosened things up in a really nice way I just wonder um sometimes improvisation and classical musicians don't often go hand in hand and it can be like quite a a scary leap uh, for people to make so how how did you sort of edge into that world and how would you recommend someone want to dip their toe in yeah okay well how much time do we have <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, this, that's also a really good question. I mean, I I have always said that I really started making music through improvising. It sounds almost cliche, like, eh, this is what I d- I've always done it. But I did, I have always done it. I mean, before we learn a particular technique on an instrument, I, w- I was lucky to have a piano in my house. Um, you know, we had musicians in our family and I just bashed at the piano and I used to make things up. I was a terrible reader of music when I was learning to read notation. I really struggled with it. And so I used to just make up my own stuff. That was also how I started composing, but it really was improvising in the beginning. So, you know, I teach in higher education improvisation 
Uh, and if I'm teaching students who come from a classical background, one of the things that you have to unwind is, I suppose, the idea of there being like a right way to play and a wrong way to play and good sounds and bad sounds. And of course, you can have opinions about whether you like sounds or whether you don't like sounds, but there is no absolute right way to play or wrong way to play, you know. And so much of the classical training is about being able to play things stylistically, perfectly, without sweating, you know, um, in, in, all, in all these kind of ways that it's meant to look sort of beautiful and virtuosic and effortless. And it's not effortless. And it's really hard. <laughs> um, so with the improvising, I suppose, when I'm teaching, I try and unwind some of that in people and just invite them to listen in a slightly different way um, and to try and think about um, not worrying too much about the sounds that have happened, but more worrying about the sounds that are happening. Mm. And that can get you a long way. Yeah. So as soon as you start to move away from the panic, which is a very real panic of, oh my God, I've made that sound and that didn't sound good. And now these other people I'm with are going to think I can't play my instrument properly. And oh my God, I don't know what's happening. It, the, the best thing to do is actually just to focus on what's happening now. Don't even think about what's happening coming forward. Just focus on now and you'll probably be fine. And I think also one of the other things I love about improvising is certainly the communities I work in, you get people from all kinds of different musical backgrounds. So obviously I came through classical music. I also have this this relationship with sort of staged music and film music. And I play with people who come from jazz and sort of came through the free jazz route and noise musicians or experimental musicians or people who really love minimalism and people who've never played instruments before. And they all come together in an improvising space. And there's always a sound that can be made that can contribute. So something else I say when I'm teaching is there's no wrong way to make the sounds. And we can talk about whether we like how those sounds go together or not. And we can talk about how, you know, how interesting it is or how not interesting it is. But there's really no wrong way to do it, which is nice. There's not a lot of situations where we get to have, like, not a wrong way to do something. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. All the pieces so far are all extremely different. What drives you to continually look at this particular topic through a different lens? And do you see yourself expanding the series further? So um, in terms of thinking about ecology uh, and moss, (laughs) (laughs) um, well, I think on the the bigger one, on ecology, I mean, as, as humans, as humanity, we're part of the ecology of this planet. Uh, the whole planet is deeply interconnected and everything works in parallel, works with and makes with everything else. So um, when I'm working with ecology or thinking about ecological ideas, I'm really trying to think more about our connection to everything that we normally think is not us, right? So the mosses, we normally think the mosses are not us or the trees are not us or the rocks in the river or whatever are not us. So thinking ecologically for me and then within my creative practice is a way of trying to bridge some of these divisions or trying to think about ways that we can build connection rather than make distinctions. And that's going to apply for as long as we are on the planet and as long as we're part of it, we're going to have to work with that. Uh, Art of any kind can be a really powerful tool for bringing people into relationship with the natural world And so I hope that by making some pieces that um, even focus on little elements can bring people's attention towards things in a different way, you know, might make someone look at moss differently or think about the plants that they see in the corners of the street slightly differently and think about how actually quite present these things are for us all the time. That's what interests me about this kind of practice is how can it actually show us more about how we're related to other things in the world. And in that sense, 
there's always going to be a different way of looking at it. There's always going to be something new to make about it. There's always going to be a new lens, I suppose, to look at it. You know, Moss Gardens, uh, all of these pieces and, and Maud, as you say, are quite different pieces. One of them is written for stage and also is a, is a composed notated work. And the other one, Moss Gardens number one, has a score now, but it didn't originally and it was made from improvisation. Um, they're very different things, but I suppose for me, they're trying to tap into the same idea, which is how can we talk about the relationship between ourselves and these things we normally think of as being not part of the human sphere? Um, and what does that teach us about our relationship with them? Brilliant. Excellent. Um, so can you remind our listeners of the details of the up and coming performances of Maud? And is there anything else that you would like to plug? Yes, I can. Maud, which is in the double bill with Down in the Valley, is being performed by the Scottish Upper Young Company. Um, there are lots of different dates coming up at the end of July. So on the 27th and the 28th of July of this year, uh, it's going to be at the Scottish Opera Production Studios in Glasgow. Uh, and the show starts at 6pm. And then it's going to be at Albert Halls in Stirling on the 30th of July, also at 6pm. And then at Barfields Theatre in Largs on the 29th of July, uh, which is also at 6pm. Uh, and tickets can be acquired via the Scottish Opera website. Um, yeah, and I recommend that uh, if anyone's interested to book their tickets soon, because I'm hoping they're going to sell very well. Quite <laughs> <laughs> um, optimism. Yeah, and in terms of other stuff, I want to uh, something to plug. Wow. Um, if you want to find my music, you can find it on Spotify and on Bandcamp and on Amazon Music and things like that. And also, um, there will be more of these Moss pieces coming soon. Um, I'm currently working on one for solo voice, uh, well, choir of voices, and one for bass recorder and electronics. So hopefully, those will those will come within the next year. We'll put links in the episode notes as well for all of that. So to play it out, we're going to hear a little bit of Moss Gardens 1. And before we hear it, could you tell us a little bit about it? So Moss Gardens 1 was the first piece I recorded in this Moss series. And I was really thinking about a walk that I took recently. I live between North Yorkshire and East Lancashire in uh, a district called Pendle. And there are these really uh, quiet, damp cold little uh, valleys which you can walk through and they're filled with moss and I took a walk through one of them in the late evening and everything was so so quiet and I could only really hear the dripping of the water and the falling of the waterfalls and then in the distance I could hear the wind coming over the top of the hills and so I came home and I was working on these uh, improvisations I think that the dripping of the water and then the wind over these hills turned into the harp and the recorder uh, in this piece it's very contemplative I think very quiet very still and um, it's very contemplative uh, very quiet and very still <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you.